And so I want to just read this scripture, and then you're going to see what's about to happen here. Genesis 32, 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, long story, his two female servants and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what's your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Pretty interesting story about this man who's wrestling with God. You know, there's a whole people group by this name, Israel. And from here on out, they were called the Israelites, and that word actually means one who wrestles or struggles with God. So there's a whole people group right now called, those are the ones who wrestle with God. But let me just tell you, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you've been grafted into this family as well. I'm not a direct descendant, I don't think, of Abraham, uh, but so I'm not connected in that way. But when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, that God connects me with that family. And so I am also one who wrestles, struggles with God. In our student ministry, one of the things, one of my goals for whenever they leave our student ministry is that they would learn to wrestle with God. I think too many times we bubble wrap our kids in scripture verses and then send them out into the world and they've never actually been through any struggle. And then we wonder what happens. I think it's so important that we understand that we need to learn how to wrestle with God. Now, in, in talking about wrestling, I just want to highlight the Eastern York School District because their wrestling team, I believe they got to districts this year, and then Cole Staker right here, can you give him a hand? Cole went to regionals as a freshman at 189 pounds. This man's got a future. But what I do want to share is his heart is much bigger than his physical appearance. God is doing something in this young man, and we have many others on the wrestling team, Cameron, who is a senior as well, and Sam and Braden, and many of these boys, and, and they will tell you when you wrestle, it's hard, right? I see a wrestler right over here, yeah? He's smiling at me. <laughs> it's because wrestling is hard. Cameron, after his, his one event, he walked over to the side and threw up, and he was bleeding, have you ever felt that way when you've wrestled with God? I know I have. The word wrestling there actually means a pounding into the dirt. Pounding into the dust. So this isn't just like, oh, <laughs> stop it. That tickles, right? That's not that kind of wrestling. But there are places where people give up wrestling with God and then they stagnate in their faith. And I want to share with you a couple of those ways. The first way is this, wrestling with God's word. In Genesis 31.3, actually, I think it's 32.3. 32.3, then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. This was the word from the Lord. This is what Jacob was told to do. Now, 
on the outside, that doesn't look very significant. But let me just tell you, Jacob does not want to do this. He had deceived his brother Esau out of his blessing and run away. So the last time he was with his family, his brother was ready to murder him. He was angry. And so when God says, now it's time to go back to your family, it's not like, oh, good, a family reunion. No, this is a bad situation. But the word of the Lord says that he is supposed to go back and he is supposed to see his family. God told him to do this. Let me tell you, the Bible is not a dull object. It's sharp and it cuts. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. One of my favorite quotes is by a man you've maybe heard of named C.S. Lewis. He was an intellectual and atheist turned Jesus worshiper and theologian. And, and in, I want you to see this on the screen. He says this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abdominally and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. Yes. When coming to Christ, there are a number of things that we know need to happen in our lives. Maybe you've dealt with an addiction or some other things in your family, um, but, but then you come to Christ and, and there's that surface level stuff that God begins to do. But how many of you have been in that place where all of a sudden you begin to read God's word and it's like, oh, that cut a oh, I didn't know that was there. And he starts to do something internally inside of you that hurts a little bit. See, this is where people stop growing in their faith. It's the I've gotten far enough attitude let me share this with you. If the Bible doesn't offend you inside at some point, you're not reading it right. I don't care if you have gray hair, no hair, or long hair. If you're reading the Bible right now and it totally agrees with you, you're not reading it right. Oftentimes we read into scripture by the views that have been passed down to us, maybe by our families. Maybe sometimes some of us feel like we've been hit by the Bible, maybe been physically beaten by the Bible. You know, I, I don't know what the situation is, but you look through that lens. A lot of us, we look through the lens of social activism and we begin to read with that perspective or, or military experience. And so everything is read with a military background or, or a political bend where we begin to read into the scriptures our opinions about things or personality types. That's called eisegesis. That's, that's reading the word for what you want it to say. But exegesis is actually reading the words and let it speak to you. There's a danger of personality-based preference spirituality. We have to mature beyond our personality preferences. At first, when it comes to discipleship, that's important. That's important for you to see, like, oh my gosh, this speaks to me. Like, I, I get this and everything. But, but at some point, we have to wrestle with the things that don't always make sense. If it agrees with everything you think, you've been staying in the echo chamber of your favorite scripture verses. We hit scriptures that we're not a fan of. We're forced to wrestle with deeply held convictions that come in contradiction with the word. 
Twice a year for our youth ministry, I, I've made this a habit of going what's called expository preaching. You, you begin at one side of the book and you finish at the other side. And so I always choose like a, an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book. The last one I did was Exodus. So as you can imagine, it took me a little while. But the reason why I make sure to plant that in there is that they can see how we work through a book of the Bible and we hit some of those verses that are really just difficult to wrestle with. But here's the thing, biblical knowledge is more than just hearsay and rote memorization, it's discovering a person. Discovery requires personal experience. The second way is is wrestling with God's way. Wrestling with God's way. In Genesis 32, seven and eight, we see what Jacob decided to do. In great fear and distress, keywords, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. He devised a plan. He had a plan A, he had a plan B. In fact, he also had a plan C. He's like, I'm gonna pacify him with gifts. I'm just gonna send all these gifts over and then hopefully that like pacifies him a little bit. Then we can have a discussion about what happened. Have you ever hit a place in scripture where it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. God Breaks hips? I mean, am I the only one? Okay, then you're more holy than me, so. God breaks hips? I was, I was watching uh, this one guide from Israel. He's been in Israel for 25 years, and he, t- he spent six months with Bedouin shepherds over there, and he said some of the shepherds, whenever there was a sheep that kept going astray and going astray, they would put their leg beside a rock, and they would drop their knee, and they'd break their leg and they would put them over their shoulder, and then they would carry them around for like four weeks, feeding them and giving them food and watering them, and then that they would stay with them. Now, some people believe that's a myth. Some people have tried to debunk that. This guy, I said I was with them when they did that. But what I will say is what they do is they do something called a leg break, B-R-A-K-E, like the break of a car. So what they'll do is they'll put a heavy weight on one of the legs so that the sheep limps around and it can't go very far and it stays close to the shepherd. Now, this is when Christian cultural cliches don't work anymore. And another Bible study is not gonna help this. God never gives you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard that before? Yeah. Ask Job about that one. Ask Paul about that one. Ask every martyr in history who's been burned at the stake for their faith. God never gives you more than you can handle. Yes, he does. He gives you more than you can handle so that you know it's not about you. It's about him. There are nuances to the character of God. There are places where we hit and we're like, oh my gosh, we see this new perspective of him, but not everything completely makes sense. Some of us stay in that place of our faith, like, you know, we're, we're giving the Father in heaven the world's greatest dad cup. Have you ever gotten a world's greatest dad thing? Yeah, am I the only one? Yeah, I see one. Yeah, I've gotten some of those, right? And, and it's that shirt or else it's that coffee cup. Let me show you what I get here. Um, this is, says time, This is one of his work things at school. My son Gray is seven. Time to hibernate. What do you think it would be like to hibernate all winter? I think hibernation would be cozy and cold because I will lay on my dad. It gets better. I like to bounce on my dad's belly too. And the last line, my dad snores. 
I don't know if you can see that picture, but I'm actually laying there saying, ow! And it's Grace saying, we! <laughs> World's greatest dad, right? My, my son, he got back from Breakaway, and he wanted to get a new Bible. Um, and he wants to, one like his dad, you know, leather-bound and bigger and stuff like that. Up until this point, he had one of those, like, adventure Bibles that just kind of tells the story. It's not the scripture verses. And so he wanted the Bible, Right? And so I went out, Barnes and Noble, got him that Bible. We get home and he opens up the book and he goes like this. Dad, there's, there's 1,300 pages. I said, yeah, bud, you can do it. He said, but my other one had 500 pages. I said, okay. He said, I thought you said nobody can add to this book. <laughs> Go to your room. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but... But what is it? It's a nuance, right? That's what that means. It's like, well, how do, you under, how do you explain that? Like, he's taking me very literally. And sometimes there are just nuances to God's character that you can't fully comprehend yet and don't fully know. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. I wonder how many of us quote that scripture but still go back like Jacob to plan A, B, and C. Sometimes I think we, we pray for safety too much for our kids. They never have to grow any faith muscles. I love this. Tyler Staten says, in Jesus, we're not revealed a God we can always understand, but we are revealed a God we can trust. You can trust him. But I don't fully understand. You don't have to fully understand. You can trust him. Think about Jeremiah in the Old Testament. Jeremiah was told by God to buy a field. Before that, God told him they're all getting exiled. Hmm? Does that make sense to you? Like, like, hey, you're about to be exiled, but buy that field. Which one is it, Lord? Buy that field. But you said, buy that field, <laughs> right? It doesn't make any sense. Why is he supposed to do this? And of course, God in his ways does what he's going to do. Habakkuk, he says, the just shall live by faith. Here's the thing, not by their own understanding. They were wrestling with this disturbing problem that God would use a deplorable, wicked people to deal with his own people in judgment. God, why? Why would you use them? You mean God can use evil people too? Yep. Yes. And so like we, we see these things, we're like, I, I don't understand. A whole people group, the Israelites, they're going like, wait, you're gonna use the Babylonians? You're gonna use these, these bad people Against us, God's going to do what God's going to do. And here's the thing. We tend to start making excuses for God because we're worried about his reputation. Can I tell you he's big enough? Can I tell you he's still on the throne? I don't care what Fox News or CNN says. I really don't care because he's still seated on the throne. Jesus is going to be Jesus like he was yesterday, like he is today, like he ever will be. And so sometimes it's our reputation that we're worried about because we don't understand. I can't tell you how many times my son asked me something and be like, son, I just don't know, <laughs> you know? The things about the dinosaurs, right? Like one time I'm, he's going like this in the back seat. I'm like, Craig, what are you doing? He said, well, you said God's everywhere. And I said, yeah. He's like, I'm trying to see him.
Job's friends were this way with Job. He had a horrible situation and, and all of his friends wanted to explain why. Well, there must be sin in your life. Here's why. Here's why God does things the way he does. It's because of this and because of this, because of this. Here's the thing. Faith is not a manipulation or a formula. It's a patience, trust, and confidence in the midst of mystery. I'm gonna say that again. Faith is not a manipulation or a formula. It's a patience, trust, and confidence in the midst of mystery. Job 42, at the end of Job's book, he says this, I know that you can do all things. So he's saying, I know you're on the throne. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, so this is God speaking now, who is this that obscures my plans without my knowledge? He's basically saying, who are you, Job? Who are you? It's like him saying to Jacob, who, who do you think you are devising all these plans? Job says this, surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. I love this phrase. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He said, I knew of you before, but now I see this whole different nuance and perspective of your character and who you are. There are some things you can only learn of God's character through the wrestling. Here's the thing though, when it doesn't make sense, we are often better at reacting than reflecting. We're better at reacting than reflecting. Don't try to put God in a box and try to define what he's doing. It's not about comprehension, it's about connection. It's an encounter. The speed at which everyone feels the need to offer an opinion is nauseating at times. How quickly we wanna take a move of God and we wanna wrap a prescription around it of our own understanding why we think God's doing it like he is. Let me tell you, every revival in history has been different. The Welsh revivals were all about salvation. The Hebrides revival was really a focus on holiness. The Jesus movement was an infusion of God's love. Azusa Street was tongues and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Toronto revival was manifestations and charisma and joy. And the Asbury revival is intense peace and unity and humility in leadership. Now, let me ask you, what do you think that a, this generation who's more anxious than any other generation in history, this generation who's suffering more from depression than ever before, this generation who's getting so much more information poured into their lives, what do you think they need? Do you think they need a glory cloud right here to just like have a dramatic moment? Or do you think they need peace? Now, I'm not God. And I don't understand why he does things, why Asbury, why the situation. In fact, if you go back and talk to the guy who, uh, who actually shared the message before that happened, he said, I bombed. He said, I, I did terrible. He didn't, he didn't like his message. He said that, that he hadn't prepared. He was late. He threw something together. You know what it was? It was 19 students coming up to the front and pressing in and wrestling with God. There's the He Gets Us campaign, the Jesus Revolution movie, the chosen Grammy-winning songs like Fear Is Not My Future, which has been an anthem for me and my family in this season. Do you think he can't work through that too? And yet we want to wrap a prescription because our personalities fit a certain thing. A.W. Tozer said this in the 1950s, he said, our mistake is that we want God to send revival on our terms. We want to get the power of God into our hands to call it to us that it may work for us in promoting and furthering our kind of Christianity. 
We want to still be in charge, shouting glory to God, but modestly accepting a share of the glory for ourselves, calling on God to send fire on the altars, completely ignoring the fact that there are altars and not God's. There was a difference between Moses and Joshua. Both of them saw water split and walked on dry land, but God didn't use the same methods to get them there. We're often arguing methodologies as if they're principles. Listen, I'm all about discernment. Theology, there's a lot of false teaching and, and warning against this. And, and actually, it's in my job description, not here at Wrightsville Assembly of God, but in the Bible that as a leader, as a spiritual leader, I'm supposed to point out those things and, and deal with those things, absolutely. But let me just tell you, Jesus is not a theology or a doctrine. He's a person. He's the Lord. But for some people, nothing's ever gonna be biblical enough. Jesus could show up right now and be here in the flesh and do something. You're gonna be like, ah, 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 that's not biblical enough. Or God's only able to move like within my personality and emotional bandwidth. It's gotta fit within here or else it's not God. Or I haven't seen enough social change yet. God didn't, didn't switch up the presidency. He didn't do what I wanted to see him do it, so it must not be God. Or there's nobody speaking in tongues or manifestations. There's FOMO. You know what that is? Fear of missing out. God, you owe me for this. I've been faithful. Let me begin to sound like the older brother. Now, you may sound like I'm, I'm talking down to you right now, but this was me two weeks ago. I remember going through a difficult time. My wife had chemo that week, and, and we had the prayer gathering coming up, and, and I had just made one of our youth students cry. So don't think I got it all together. And I told Pastor Aaron as he was coming down the steps, I said, Pastor Aaron, like, I want to be in prayer tonight because I need prayer. Not because I'm on the worship team or because I'm a pastor. Like, I need prayer tonight. But I had to get home because my son was being dropped off by somebody. My daughter was being dropped off by somebody. And my wife needed me. And so I got home and, and um, you know, the night was fine. And then I got a phone call from my father-in-law, Earl. You missed it. <laughs> You missed it, Chris. It was amazing. He said, it was amazing. And he's telling me about it. And, and, and he's telling this, how this happened and then this happened. And, and then he's like, again, he said, it's amazing. You missed it. You missed it. He said, you missed it like six or seven times. And every time felt like a jab in the side. And he noticed that I was quiet on the other end. He said, are you okay? And I said, no. I'm a little frustrated, honestly. Because I wanted to be there. I needed that too. And he prayed for me, and sometimes we got to check our hearts, church. Because you know what the truth is? I was right where I was supposed to be. Taking care of my family and my kids and my amazing wife. And sometimes it's a fear of becoming irrelevant. We have this fleshly scramble to recreate and, and do what they did, and then we can say, see, it's happening here too. These things become distractions from seeing the beauty of Jesus. A sovereign move of God is just that, a sovereign move of God. The Holy Spirit's being poured out, and we don't get to decide what it looks like. Our hope's not in revival, but in the reviver. Our hope's not in the miracle, but the miracle worker. Our hope's not in the prophets or prophecies, but the one who holds the future. The last thing this generation needs are more Holy Ghost police, spiritual bounty hunters, or another watchman on the wall. They need fathers and mothers. They need encouragers. 
We are suffocating a generation that's getting ready to step into their God-given moment. Let me just ask you, are you willing as an older person to get out of the way and let it happen God's way? I'm grouping myself in that as well. Listen, if my son or daughter wins, would I get jealous of them? Right? She, my daughter won her soccer game, like, oh, I can't believe she won. I wish I would win something. No, what do I do? I throw her on my shoulder and I celebrate. You know, if people are repenting, getting saved, we should all be celebrating. I, I just wonder how many times I've missed the workings of God because it doesn't fit into my paradigm. That's why we, we have the current. It's moving, changing now. Because God is doing something new and we need new wineskins to receive it. You can have sound theology and still be open to whatever God wants to do. The last thing is this, wrestling with God's whisper. And I think this is probably one of the hardest, has been for me. It says that Jacob wrestled all night. This was nighttime, and he was alone. Makes me think of 1 Kings 19, when Elijah was on the mountain, and it says, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. There are times in our faith where for the first time it feels like our faith doesn't work. We seem to have more questions than answers. We don't know where God is, what, he, what he's doing, what's going on, how he's getting us there, when it's gonna be over. It feels dark, helpless, weary, sense of failure, defeat, barrenness, emptiness, dryness. Our good feelings of God's presence, it just seems to evaporate. The disciplines that used to get us here just don't seem to be working anymore. It's what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. Some others call it the wall. I want to show you a picture of, of this. Um, so in stage one, there's this life-changing awareness of God. Like all of a sudden you get saved. God's doing some incredible things. Discipleship, you're growing in your faith. The active life, you begin, you're serving and you're, you're, you're acting out that faith. And, and then suddenly you hit the wall. Now, I'm not talking about Alexander and the no good, very bad, terrible, horrible day. I'm talking about David a, fleeing a jealous king for 13 years in the desert. I'm talking about Abraham waiting 25 years for the birth of his child. I'm talking about Job losing his 10 children, health and possessions in a day. I'm talking about kneeling in the snow in your coveralls next to burning trash after working for a year and a half with no idea what God is doing. I'm talking about watching the doctors push your wife back in through the double doors as she's having a double mastectomy and you are totally uncertain about what the outcome is going to be. I'm talking about those moments in your life when the disciplines just aren't working anymore. God, why? Why can't I feel you? Why can't I sense you? In the midst of everything that my wife is going through, I wanna show you another picture. There's my beautiful queen. Can you guys give her a hand? But if you look at the background, do you see what's happening here? 
Somebody in the first service, like, you, you set that up. Yeah, like Instagrammable moment, you know, the vacuum. No, I, I realize that, you know, in the midst of some of these circumstances, God begins to do a root work in your life. It's deeper than, than you can just get to. And to be honest with you, I've got some control issues. I've had them ever since my mom passed away from cancer. When what happens is when, when we can't control things, we start to try to control other things, other people, other circumstances, right? And, and God's dealing with me in that, and, and I've come a long way, I'll be honest with you. That was a terrible, I don't know why, she took that. I mean, who doesn't want their house clean before you go to chemo, right? Jeez. But I will say, God is doing a deeper work in those situations. The bottom line is there's something in the inside of us that needs to die and be reborn. Oftentimes, it's related to the seven deadly sins. It's pride, greed, lust, anger, spiritual gluttony, spiritual envy, sloth. He's reminding us that sometimes we don't need another solution. We need God's presence. I'm gonna ask Macy if she can come up here. She's gonna share a poem with you. As I was reading her poem, I believe that she really gives an answer to a lot of that wrestling that we deal with. Come on up, Macy. Can you guys give her a hand as she comes up here? My mind is at war, wrestling with anxiety. Endless scenarios, what ifs, swirling inside of me. Though I feel overwhelmed, rocked in the sea of despair, I cling to your promise. I rely on this prayer, that you walk with me on every road, that you carry me wherever I go. Whatever I face, I have no reason to fear. I trust in your words. You are here. Amazing. Macy's poem is reminding us that's where we wrestle. That's why we dig in and we cling to his presence. Like Jacob, all night long, clinging to him, clinging to him, clinging to him. God, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand. Keep clinging to him. Charles Spurgeon said, if you can't see his hands, trust his heart. I remember being in Clearfield County one time, and this is a shack of a cabin, okay? So it was um, an outhouse, and it's 3 a.m. in the morning, and I had to go, if you know what I mean. <laughs> TMI? Okay, it's not a youth service. I forgot. <laughs> but I had to go at like 3 in the morning, and I ran outside, and I realized it's so dark. <laughs> Couldn't even see my hand in front of my face. And so I'm like, Bad idea, you know. I go back inside and I got a flashlight and I'm just like turning on the flashlight every once in a while just to see where I'm going. And then all of a sudden I heard this rustling in the bushes. You know how your mind gets? It's a lion. <laughs> Came from Africa, transplanted here. It's a lion, right? Like, and you just have these thoughts and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I, you, what do you do in that moment? Your ears get really attuned and you get real still and you start to listen. And, and I turn on the flashlight, and as I, as I look around in the flashlight, there's a herd of about 50 elk rolling through the camp. Now, I remember two feelings. <laughs> number one, I got to go. <laughs> and number two, there's just this awe and reverence that I had in that moment. It's like, I, I, this is beautiful. 
the middle of the night and and, and those are the moments where like you, you lean in and you, you listen a little bit closer and you, you, you wrestle with him and you, and you figure out, God, I don't need to figure out, I just want your presence. There's a couple things that, that come from this. When you get to the end of your dark night of the soul, number one is a greater level of brokenness. Number two is a greater appreciation for holy unknowing the mystery of God. You know what I've realized as I've grown in the Lord? How much I don't know about the Lord. A deeper ability to wait for God and a greater detachment from the things of this world. Let me ask you this. Are you willing for your strut to be broken? Are you willing for your strut to be broken? Your preconceived notions about God just broken? Let me tell you what happened at the end of this transition and what happened to Jacob. In Genesis 33.3, it says, he himself went on ahead. Now, this is significant. If you, don't, if you miss it, before, do you remember what he was doing? Sending everything out in front of him. He was sending everything out in front of him. He was sending the gifts. He was sending the people. He was doing all these other things, and he sent them across, but in this moment... He puts them behind him and he comes limping out to meet his brother and he bows down, it says, seven times, a form of respect and honor. Now, I don't know what you're expecting, but I'm expecting Esau, don't bow down, dude. Esau's gonna cut your head off, man. You screwed up. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. Jacob was devising all these other things and trying to figure it all out and yet God was working on the other side. Sometimes we don't need another answer. We need to cling to his presence. He's no longer relying on his own devices but God's help, guidance and blessing. Not only that, once they weep together and they reconnect, he says, here, this stuff is for you. Now, remember, he was saying, God, I won't let you go until you bless me. The blessing had nothing to do with his stuff. And he certainly did, didn't need another wife. <laughs> Two was enough. But he says, like, listen, I, I won't let go until you bless me. Listen, the blessing wasn't the stuff. He realized the blessing was just being in the presence of God. That was enough for me. I won't let go until you bless me, bless me, bless me. Have your favor shine upon me. And he's like, I don't need this stuff. Esau's like, listen, I got a lot of stuff, dude. I don't need all your stuff. He said, I insist. I insist. Take this. Take this. It's not about this. I'm more into the reconciled relationship than I am the stuff and the blessing. I believe that's a word for somebody here today. You know what I realized, though? Esau was never his real enemy. He was his own enemy. You know, a lot of times we're blaming the devil for a lot. Why do we give him so much credit, church? Sometimes it's us. Sometimes it's the flesh. Sometimes we, we don't know exactly what God's doing, how he's doing it. 
when he's going to do it. It's the dark night of the soul. But let me just tell you, it all comes down to this brokenness. Are you willing to be broken before God? I'm gonna ask Kayla and Lacey to come up. We're gonna take a moment here and we're gonna sing this last song. These two young ladies are gonna lead us. And I want us just to spend some time. Maybe you need to wrestle. Maybe there's something in God's word that you've been arguing with God. Trust me, I've been there. In fact, when I first got saved, I was still smoking weed for a couple years. And I remember looking at scripture, I'm like, that weed's not in the Bible. It doesn't say anything about marijuana. Hell, it doesn't say anything about cocaine or crystal meth either. Right? <laughs> right? Sorry, I'm a little real. But then I read the scriptures that said, be alert, sober-minded. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. And I was messing up my sound mind. It says to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. And I was too busy filling myself with other stuff instead of focusing on being filled with the spirit. And so maybe that's you today. Maybe, maybe you're dealing with something. It doesn't have to be that specific, but maybe there's something in God's word that you've been wrestling with and you don't understand. It's okay, wrestle with him. Maybe for you, God's been doing something in your life and it just doesn't make sense. And you, you're just not okay until he does it a certain way. Can I just encourage you just to get out of the way? Just get out of the way. Let him do it. And his timing and his way. And maybe you're in the dark night of the soul. Let me tell you, the answer at the end of the dark night of the soul isn't always what you want. Sometimes breakthrough breaks us. But I just want to encourage you in this moment. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And we're going to pray. And I'm going to just say this. The altars are open. We're going to sing that I, I'm caught up in your presence. I don't need anything else but that. I don't need your blessings. I don't need your stuff. Take a moment right now and wrestle with the Lord, whether that's at your seat or that's at this altar. But let me just tell you, don't let pride get in your way. Don't let what somebody else is doing get in your way of coming down and trusting that God is going to meet you right where you're at. And that was, that was Jacob trying to figure out plan A or plan B is if that person goes, then if the, no. Are you willing to wrestle with the Lord? Are you willing to wrestle with God? Are you willing to dig deep and to cling to him when you haven't seen the promise yet, when you haven't seen things that you wanted him to do? Are you willing to cling to his presence and say, I won't let go, I won't let go. Father God, today, Lord, we just pray and we press into your presence and we recognize, God, that we don't need anything else but you that even when we're alone in the middle of the night without anything around, without our stuff and, and all the other things that we consider blessings, Lord, in this Western culture, even when all of that is taken away, God, we just want you. And so today, God, we just press in. We trust you.